0: I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers Festival. We hope you enjoy this conversation recorded live at the 2021 Festival.
1: Hello, my name's Caroline Baum, and I'm delighted to be here this afternoon with Richard and Ramona. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. And I would also like to dedicate this session this afternoon to Indian writers who are struggling with a terrible, terrible catastrophe. I know many of you will have read the piece by Arundati Roy yesterday in The Guardian. And there's always been a very strong relationship between writers' festivals in Australia and the Jaipur Writers' Festival in particular. And it's a great sadness to imagine the struggle that writers are undertaking, undergoing, rather, experiencing along with everybody else in India. So if you get a chance to donate to the fund that Arundati Roy nominated in her article in The Guardian yesterday, we would be very grateful. It is incredibly daunting to be up here this afternoon with not one but two of the best interviewers in the country. <laughs> I don't know what I did to Michael for him to give me this gig, but I've got some karma somewhere that needs sorting out. Uh, Ramona, I, don't, I, I haven't told you this, but I actually know a man who has been so aggrieved at losing you from the airwaves that when he wakes up in the morning, his sort of wake-up call across the valley is, Ramona! <laughs> That's how much he misses you. Richard, I'm sure that there are women who do the same thing in the morning, but I, I don't know those people. <laughs> Uh, Ramona, of course, is the author of Bloodhound, Searching for My Father, and By the Book, A Reader's Guide to Life. Richard is the author of Ghost Empire, and with Kari Gislason, the author of Saga Land. Now, we have with us this afternoon two people with insatiable curiosity about the world that they live in, and the people that inhabit it. Both of them are, somewhat refreshingly perhaps for this uh, festival, optimists. Both of them like to start a story at the beginning, and we are not going to start at the beginning today because to tease out the threads between their two books um, requires me to cherry-pick and sort of go zigzagging across all sorts of ideas and visions of the past, the present, and the future to give you a sense of the pleasures that these two books offer you as readers. Um, Just before we start, I know you're in the dark, but I think we can see you enough. Just out of interest, I'd like to know how many of you here have had a DNA test or given a DNA test to a relative as a Christmas or birthday present? Could you put up your hand if you have? Okay, a few of you have done that. How many of you have been to Prague?
2: Whoa! Oh, my God!
1: Isn't that an interesting thing? I wonder if there's any overlap. Is there anyone who's had a DNA (laughs) test and also been to Prague? Yes, wow, there are three of you, five, excellent, six. Okay, right, so that tells us something. I'm not quite sure what, but anyway.
0: Ahoy, yes, (laughs) good day. Um,
1: I thought I would start by asking you about your COVID experiences because I was struck, um, Richard, when I was reading about the Czech leader Václav Havel, that when he went to jail, he had all sorts of plans for self-improvement. So he thought he was going to learn some languages, write some plays... And he did none of it. So was your COVID experience one where you thought, I'm going to do all sorts of things, and you did none of them?
0: Uh, yeah, Well, yes and no. I'm, I, I had no pram, program for self-improvement, I'm afraid. I'm, I'm, I'm too shallow for that. But it, instead, I, I absolutely needed to get this book finished. And I, 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 pretty, I, I pretty much ran it close to dead, very close to deadline. In fact, well, past it, if I'm to be perfectly honest. So I, I kind of threw myself into working on this book day and night in between the process of reinventing our radio program that I do with Sarah Konoski, Conversations, which we'd normally only ever interview people face to face and that was no longer possible. So all of that was going on. So even though I was reading stories about people taking time out to smell the roses, to walk around the neighbourhood, to say hello to people, to reconnect. I was doing... I think I was working harder than I've ever worked in my life (laughs) during the COVID period and uh, really annoying my family with that as well.
1: Mm. What about you, Ramona? Because I was thinking about your COVID experience in relation to Layla, your granddaughter, who is one of six grandchildren. And and I think around uh, the COVID year, she would have been five and a half, six, and quite an impressionable age. So how did she... the the thing of people donning masks around her. Was she fearful?
2: Well, you know, Melbourne, this is where I'm from, we had the real COVID Mm. lockdown. (laughs) So, um, (laughs) So in the first part of the year, last year, it was about doing um, edits of the book and that was... It was good to be home and having to do edits and it's a very sort of intense kind of uh, experience. But then um, I had two daughters. They, were, they both had what was called permitted jobs because they teach at universities and they were Zooming. One of them has four children and the other has two. And then when I finished the edits, um, I was the grandmother who was going around first one to one house, then the other cooking for them because they were all working on Zoom and helping the kids with their homework. Have you ever seen... Layla was was at kinder and uh, I think the patron saint of of COVID should be teachers. Mm. Because if you have ever seen what it was like to teach kids over the Zoom, especially bloody kindergarten kids who don't read, so they can't know if they're on mute or not, and their, and their fathers in the background were on the, on the blower to their stock brokers, stock going, sell, sell, buy, buy. And the, and the teachers are going, you know, Flossie, can you please stop? You know, no, you're not allowed to drink. You're not allowed to eat. No, stop jumping, Johnny. And then somebody else's sister would come in. Tell your sister to go. And this is... This was the whole. This is the whole experience, and I just thought these people deserve a medal. Absolutely, absolutely. You should.
1: Um, let's start with you telling us a little bit about what your book is about, because your book takes this great sort of epic sweep from our deep, deep past to our possible, possible future. So we're going
2: from cave paintings to cryogenics. Would you just like to give us the sort of broad brushstrokes? Well, cave paintings is really quite recent, because we're talking about, you know, sort of 30,000 years, but because I start, you know, millions of years ago, because I like to start a story at the beginning. <laughs> um, but like, I, this is what this book is about. I noticed that, um, you know, climate change was upon us, lots of awful things are happening in the world, and I suddenly realised that everybody in charge is younger than me. And when I was young, I thought everyone in charge knew what they were doing. And now I know they probably don't. Mm. And... I started to look at our creaturely brothers and sisters, I mean us, these people, you, thought, who is this creature? How did we get to be like this? How did we get to be in this position that the fate of the earth is in our hands with our handy, you know, opposable thumbs? (laughs) So um, I decided to find out how we got to be like this and and whether there was something that I could work out about where we were going and, and how we could work together better. So I decided, I used to be a scientist before I was a journalist, so I was good at reading a scientific paper and having a talk to people who knew about all kinds of things from um, artificial, uh, uh, ancient DNA to paleobiology to anthropology. And I thought I'd apply myself to these vast and interesting kind of um, areas to really work my way through. And I selected people I thought, would be able to tell me things about the world as it was and perhaps as it will be, artificial intelligence and robotics and and transhumanism. But I discovered along the way that each person that I went to talk to told me something about the human condition that I wasn't expecting, something about hope and something about uh, love and something about sadness and something about uh, disappointment and something about... um, the thrill of of learning new things, but all the way all the way through this, my youngest granddaughter Layla um was of course, when you know the grandmother's at home working, everybody brings their kids to your place because they're having a day off, they just feel a bit sick they're they're a baby in a bassinet, so Layla was here in my in my office um, and I just noticed that whenever i um would would study something, and, and I would look at her, and I was thinking, well, oh, this is a good example of a homo sapiens, and what is she doing now? And I would take notes, and and then as she grew, the book took me five years, and she began to move, and she began to notice things, and she began to walk, and she began to talk, and then our conversations began to, to take in sort of a, a, a greater import, because it all sort of resonated with what I was learning. So, so the book is a letter to Lane, Layla, but it's a letter to everybody. Yeah, because in fact, it's not,
1: it's not a letter. You no. haven't written a letter. No. You've written a series of essays, uh, which are part travelogue and part sort of science journalism. So having called it Letter to Layla, why isn't it a letter?
2: Well, you know, this whole world is a letter to Layla. <laughs> this, everything I know is a letter to Layla. Because you know, when you're old, you can you sort of fancy yourself as being a little bit wise, and you know, having made all the mistakes possible, maybe you learned a little bit. So, the letter is t- to give her everything mm. I hope I've learned, and then to hope that she can run with it and make her own mistakes and uh, and learn something about the world that I don't know. Richard, um, your book on Prague—you've
1: called it a biography, and I was very curious about that and why it's not a history of Prague or some other kind of um, label attached to it. Why is it a biography?
0: I think it's because the city has such a distinctive personality, Uh, which impressed itself upon me very, very forcibly the first time I went there in the most extraordinary circumstances. I first went to Prague in the aftermath of its Velvet Revolution. This is the fall of communism. We all, many people here might remember the year 1989 when, one by one, the old Stalinist police states of Central and Eastern Europe fell down under, under the wave of democratic revolutions. It's kind of like the reverse of the process the world's been going through in the last five or six years. It was a wonderful, heady moment. While this was happening, I was living in London, performing with a foul-smelling and scabrous comedy trio and uh, we were doing a theatre season I was watching these revolutions unfold. Just uh, being a history lover, I I just wanted to be there and and to see it for myself and by the time the Berlin Wall fell in November 89, I was sort of jumping out of my skin and as soon as I could, when my girlfriend arrived in London at the time, we uh, went to Berlin and that's a whole other story I might write about one day and then to Prague. and Prague was a city I'd never been to before. I had no check language whatsoever, I heard it was kind of fabled fabled and beautiful, I did, had read much of, quite a bit of its literature, Uh, writers like Joseph Shkvoretsky, uh, Ivan Klima, uh, Václav Havel, Milan Kundera uh, and um, Jaroslav Hasek, all these great Czech writers but I'd never been to the place and I arrived in January 1990, the revolution had just been accomplished and the police state leaders had been overthrown. And the new president in the castle was a playwright, a bohemian from Bohemia, who was uh, a man of sort of unimpeachable moral integrity, a a brave and principled dissident who'd gone to jail, a writer of brilliant absurdist plays that had been hailed all over the world, a man of good humour, moderation and good sense and great kindness as well. So this fairy tale was erupting, and I was amongst the happiest people in Europe. And then there was the city itself, this, this, the, the personality of the city that kept pressing against me. And it's one of the most liminal places in the world, Prague. It's, it's so incredibly beautiful in a very uncanny way. And I know a lot of people say this, it's a bit narcissistic, but you think, oh, I have this feeling of return, uh, of homecoming. And I was wondering how would would I have that? And then it took me a while to put my finger on it, and then I realised it was because Prague is the landscape of all the dark fairy tales and folk tales many of us receive as children, like from the Brothers Grimm, from other European folk tales. But the older, darker versions of those tales, the ones where Cinderella's uh, sisters, older sisters, lop off parts of their feet to fit them into the glass slipper. The ones where Little Red Riding Hood uh, comes to the grandmother's house to find the wolf has already devoured her. Uh, She uh, accidentally imbibes the blood and bone of her grandmother, she's forced to dance naked for the wolf who then kills her. And that's the end of the story. There's no <laughs> cheerful woodsman to come to her rescue. Uh, this is Prague. This is how it feels. Prague is the city that gave birth to these wild ideas, these extraordinary monsters. Uh, the first one is the legend of the golem, the Jewish monster made out of river mud that protects the Jewish people from pogroms. It's the city where Franz Kafka wrote Metamorphosis, where Gregor Samsa wakes up one morning to find himself transformed into a giant cockroach. And it's also the city where the robot was conceived. Robots first started appearing in fiction in a play called R.U.R., Rossum's Universal Robots, written by Karel Čapek in Prague in 1920, I think it was, 1920, on stage in the the theatres of Prague. And the word robot's a Czech word. It means indentured slave, indentured servant. So the concept of the robot comes from this time, the cockroach, human-turned-cockroach and the golem. And Prague is that city where it's so easy to feel these weird creatures of the imagination can come forth. And Prague presses on you when you're there. I'm sure people who've been to Prague have felt that about it. The sheer weirdness of the place is so thrilling, uncanny, tantalising, even with the Brazilian tourists that have been going through the joint uh, before COVID hit.
1: And it's also the city where Casanova helps uh, Mozart finish Don Giovanni. I mean, you know, let's add that to the kind of literary list as well. I didn't know that until I
0: started researching that. Yeah, Casanova was there for the premiere of Don Giovanni. Casanova, the real Casanova, was there. Mozart premiered Don Giovanni, you know, the rake, the lover. But Casanova, it now is thought, actually helped write the libretto to that. It's just kind of cool.
1: Amazing. So both of your books um, are... are, um, They both excavate stories. They're both involved in kind of narrative archaeology, I guess. And Ramona, you're very interested in kind of disruptive origin stories. So perhaps because we um, asked the audience before about DNA and we should explain sort of why, you've got a lot of interest in um, ancient DNA. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the work of Wolfgang Haack. And then, Richard, I'm
2: going to come to the connection with you. Wolfgang Haack um, uh, was an expert in ancient DNA. Um, ancient DNA is extraordinary. I mean, DNA is hard enough. I mean, these days you just have to spit in a, a vial and it goes off and it comes back. Um, but, you know, the idea of ancient DNA, which is like, it can be you know, 40,000, no, 40, but um, what he was working with was about 12,000 years old. So you can find DNA out of some of the um, bits and pieces of bones that are been stored in museums up until now and previously you could work out what was going on with the people who were excavated by looking at the bones, by analysing um, the, the chemical uh, composition, by working out what they ate, by looking at um, how their, their musculature was attached to the bones to work out whether these were people who walked a long way or whether these were people who threw um, lots of spears with their hands because you know they would develop particular musculature and that would... Impress itself on the bones of the arms. I mean, that was a way of finding out what happened to people and where they were, what they were doing. But since ancient DNA was has been uh, able to be uh, sort of isolated and analysed, we can now find out so much more about populations. And um, Wolfgang Hark was working in Jena, and he. His uh, particular interest was in European populations of the last sort of 12,000 years. And what he had found was that if you um, had a look at some of the bones of the people who had, been, had died you know, maybe 12,000 years ago, they weren't related in any way, really, to the people who had been living there for the last few thousand years. So all of the stories about where do I come from, and where is my family from? And where have we always been from? Are actually not correct, because human populations move. Sometimes they're driven away from where they are. Sometimes they're driven towards something they want to to, to explore. Famine might drive them. Um, you know, very big climate changes might drive them. And they, when they get to where they're going, they might have a big fight they might fall in love they might capture people they might enslave them they might mate with them and you know all of the the turnover of of people and where they you know and, and the markers in their dna will tell you that human beings have been you know moving around forever even before we were Homo sapiens, we were, we were, our, our ancient um, Homo erectus ancestors moved around the world extraordinarily. So um, this, was a, this is a challenge to some of the um, fables that we all tell ourselves. I mean, all of our big stories are about where we were from and how, we were in, how this place is ours and how this land is ours. So it's a disruptor about what we think we know about where we're, where we're coming from. And when I read... Your book, I was uh, (laughs) very pleased to see that you know your story of of the um, exhumation. Why don't you tell us that story? This is the story that I yes that I
1: wanted to prompt Richard to tell, which is
2: the story of
1: the um, the grave of the warrior, and this is where you get the kind of inconvenient truth, basically, (laughs) of digging something up.
0: Indeed, Uh, Prague, by and large, is a city that's been populated historically, no longer, but historically, by three great peoples: the Czechs, the Western Slavs, there are Slavic people, the Germans uh, of Bohemia and the Jewish migrants to the area as well. When I say migrants, they, they moved there about a thousand years ago. That's how it's seen. And after the First World War, uh, they were, the Czechs were able to break away, form their own nation for the first time, Czechoslovakia. They were able to break away from the Austro-Hungarian Empire and have uh, a nation where the Czechs were the majority. There was a German minority and Jewish people there as well. And so they thought, let's dig around Prague Castle. This is around about the 1920s. Let's have a bit of a dig around Prague Castle because who knows, we may find the grave of St Wenceslas, who's the founding saint, as in good King Wenceslas from the Christmas Carol. And so this Ukrainian archaeologist got to work on the grounds of Prague Castle. He was a nice chap. I can't remember his name at the top of my but he was a very nice chap. He'd escaped Stalin's, the Stalinist famine in the Ukraine and thought, thank God I'm safe here in Prague where Stalin can never reach me. And he starts digging on the grounds of Prague Castle and straight away he finds this quite shallow grave, digs it out and realises it's a medieval grave of a warrior. And he looks at it and he thinks, uh-oh. Because amongst the grave goods, the artefacts that are buried with the warrior are a sword that's recognisably a Viking sword. Now, this is going to be unwelcome news to the Czechs because Viking suggests something of a Germanic ancestry. From the ninth century, it's not really what they hoped they would find. And so he thought, well, I don't want to get into trouble. I don't want to be kicked out of the country. I'm going to keep sturm about the uh, Viking sword I see there. And they, the Czech archaeologists go, oh, this, this guy's clearly Czech. Like, you know, he's uh, clearly one of us. Uh, uh, yeah, that's all fine. That's all, that's all great. 1939, the Nazis invade. A Bunch of Nazi archaeologists show up, and they're looking for historic evidence to show that the Germans have always had Prague. It's like, should be part of the German Reich. And they look at the grave of the warrior and they go, that's a Viking sword. You, to the Ukrainian uh, archaeologists... Why didn't you report this? This is your thing. You should have noted it was German. He goes, I'm, I'm really sorry. You know how it is with these checks. They, <laughs> you know, they're doing all this thing. I uh, said, so you better rewrite your thesis, son. And they're looking at him pretty hard, like uh, it's off to the concentration camp for you. So he does. He rewrites his whole thesis and says, uh, it's evidence that Germans have been here for over a thousand years and they perhaps probably own the place and that's all <laughs> fine. Uh, Herr Hitler, can I go away now and please don't kill me? So that's all fine and good and then the end of the war comes the Germans are kicked out and suddenly the red army is there and they're suddenly a lot more interested in about it being a slav all over again and they say to the they pull out this poor Ukrainian archaeologist and they say listen mate you say here he's german i think you might want to change your mind about that and he does. He writes yet another paper uh, dec- denouncing everything he's written in the past and it was those Nazis, they made me write it, I'm so sorry. But, the, but it was so clearly a Viking sword and the communists didn't know what to do about it and they didn't the want it Rus- to be the Slavic. the Rus
2: people were Vikings. The, yes,
0: they were. And that's complicated too. And that's, that's to your point, actually, in, indeed. So they put it under lock and key. They wouldn't show it. And it wasn't until the death of communism they brought it out on display. And they've done DNA testing on it. And, of course, he's a bit German. He's a bit Slavic. He's a bit of this. He's got some Slavic grade goods. He's got a Viking sword. Big deal. Everyone was walking around. Everyone was having sex with everyone else. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) So all these kind of nationalist myths uh, that prevail upon the poor scientists of the day can be very, very misleading. And it, it very much pertains to what you've been writing about, Ramona. Yes.
1: Well, and it it throws back to another story that I I love in your book, Ramona, which is the story of Ilya Ivanov. So um, this is a story where, again, um, it illustrates what happens when science collides with ideology, which is never good. So would you like to tell us about him?
2: Well, this is a... a, You know, as I said, I like to start from the beginning. And so I I begin to investigate the similarities between human beings and our nearest uh, ape Cousins, and, um, and and investigate this idea of you know how close are we and are they are, are we really are, are they just really like us except they can't talk, and it turns out they're not. Um, and I and I investigate this idea, but I came across uh, Ivanov, Ilya Ivanov, and he he was um, his big dream was a humanzee, uh, and he. You know, a (laughs) chimpanzee and a human having a baby, wouldn't that be fantastic? So, he was a pioneer of artificial insemination anyway, because he was working for Tsar Nicholas II to improve the bloodstock of his horses. And... He had a little side, uh, a side running uh, interest in hybrids and he had success in mating a horse and a zebra. So this gave him this great idea. And um, so he decided to go away from, from the Soviet Union because it was a little bit frowned upon. Although he had the backing of the Soviet Department of Scientific Institutions and the um, Pasteur Institute in France. Um, but go away, go to Africa. Do the stuff do it, in Africa. Do it somewhere quietly. <laughs> That's right. So he set up in, in 1926 his experiments uh, in French Guinea and uh, his female chim- chimpanzees failed to become pregnant with some sperm of uh, a man who reckons he was He was a bachelor, but according to him, he'd already had several children by different people. But that didn't work. So he decided that he would try and get women um, infused with sperm from chimpanzees. Anyway, that didn't work. He couldn't get hold of the women. Because the problem, apparently, um, because if she was uh, not married, she was living with her parents. If she was widow, she was passed on to the, as the wife of the nearest relative of the dead husband. So access, access was a problem. But he set up a research institute uh, on the Black Sea in Georgia. And he advertised for women, Sovietly-minded women, and he found a volunteer from Leningrad who wrote to him. Can I just read her it's letter? Heartrending, yes. 16th of March, 1928. Dear Professor, with my private life in ruins, I don't see any sense in my further existence. But when I think I could do a service for science, I feel enough courage to contact you. I beg you, don't refuse me. So I just wonder what kind of a ruinous private life would lead you to think that carrying a, a half-human, half-chimpanzee fetus to term would be better than whatever situation you'd found yourself in. But, you know, what would the child be? Would it be human? Would it be subhuman? Could it ever be happy? Would the mother be the one to care for it? Or would the child be taken by scientists and state authorities? It didn't happen. In the end... Um, his work came to nothing. Although and,
0: I do wonder about a TV show I loved as a kid called Lancelot Link's Secret Chimp, where um, it was like a get smart type thing where all the actors were chimps. That was kind of... Now I think about it, I'm just a bit disturbed by a right. <laughs> Whether they were human Zs or not, yeah. But,
2: you know, th- this, this is really about, you know, the human imagination. And it is, uh, and
1: in fact, in, in James Bradley's new novel, Ghost Species, there is an attempt by a wealthy... Um, figure like a kind of Elon Musk figure to set up a scientific research state, station in um, in the forests of Tasmania and and breed a Neanderthal. So so this is absolutely the stuff of fiction. I mean, it's the most extraordinary thing that this is. This but is the stuff story. of fiction. Is the stuff of human
2: imagination. Yes, you know.
0: After the um, Soviet takeover, the communist takeover in Prague in 1948, a lot of the language of communism at the time was about creating a better kind of human uh, a new human so homo sovieticus they sometimes called it and the regime's propaganda said that now that the unnatural forces of exploitation and capitalism have fallen away people will find they're better at loving one another uh, people will find that they are stronger and able to work longer and when i went to i went to east berlin when it was still um, the cap, the showcase city of the communist world, and the Museum of Socialist History, there was a plaque out the front that showed the di- Darwin's diagram of the ascent of man, of, you know, from chimp to ape to Australopithecus to Homo erectus to Homo sapiens, but there was one more step after that, which was Homo socialismus, <laughs> which was a slightly more upright and more dignified human, so it was like a whole new human that was going to be delivered by ideology alone.
1: Well, since we're at a writer's festival, let's talk a little bit about some of the literary um, stories that are embedded in, in um, your book about Prague. You've mentioned some of the key figures and key writers already, but there's one who is a sort of archetypal figure who sort of um, sets a template for many of the figures that um, colour uh, subsequent Czech prose with with um, figures that are absurd in, in one way or another. And, and this goes to all of these notions of this kind of science fiction sort of scenario that, that you've just talked about, Ramona. Um, a lot of the attitudes that the Czechs have to their history and its absurdities and its twists and turns in terms of who runs the country and who owns the the, the country, um, they, they've um, come through, after all, the Nazis, they've come through the communists. All of that owes a lot to this seminal character, the good soldier Schweik. And what is so extraordinary in your book is not just that you tell us the story of Schweik and the influence that he has on literature subsequently, but his creator is worthy of fiction himself oh, i mean yeah. this character yaroslav hashek yeah hashek tell us about him
0: yeah uh, yaroslav hashek was uh Born uh, late, ni- late 19th, early 20th century, a dreadful childhood, scarred by violence. His father was an alcoholic, tried to kill himself, Aw- awful, harrowing childhood. So pretty much as soon as he got out of school, Hushek became a kind of a, a drunken layabout around the pubs of Prague. And this is pre-World War I, this period. And became a bit of a prankster and a jokester. He was kind of just what that guy you may have known in your life who just drinks, spends all day in the pub drinking, making everyone laugh. And he's probably going to be uh, a, a vagrant at some point in his life. But he fell in love with a woman, Yamila, and she came from a respectable family, so he had to take a respectable job. So he became the editor of Animal World magazine, but then got sacked shortly afterwards because he'd invented, he did long articles on animals that simply did not exist that he'd invented. <laughs> Uh, Yarmila then left him and he tried, apparently, it's a bit foggy, this story, but apparently he tried to commit suicide by leaping off the parapet wall of the Charles Bridge, the beautiful stone bridge in the middle of Prague, but um, was saved, the record says, by a passing hairdresser. (laughs) Is that? (laughs) (laughs) Who yanked him off and he was put in an asylum. When he came out of the asylum, he formed something he called the Sinological Institute of Prague. Sinological, which was um, his pretentious name for a dog fancier salon. And what he would do was he'd go into the streets of Prague, find old mongrels, dye their fur, and sell them off to rich people as rare thoroughbred thoroughbred, uh, animals. Uh, For that he got into trouble. When World World War I broke out, uh, the edge of World War I, of course they were part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire there, and in the pubs he formed a political party called the Party of mild reform within the limits of Austro-Hungarian tolerance. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so he was a larrikin, you know, what we'd call a larrikin. Uh, so <laughs> World War I breaks out and he's kind of annoyed by all the jingoism. And the jingoism's complicated in Prague. It's like, let's go off and fight for his imperial majesty in Vienna, but we're Czechs. Why are we fighting for that guy when we want our own country? It's all a bit awkward. So there was a lot of paranoia in Prague. So he, he couldn't resist uh, tweaking the nose of the authorities so he checked in as a guest to Prague's most famous brothel which I think was the red peacock and he gave a Russian sounding name and listing under reasons for visiting he wrote to inspect the Austro-Hungarian military facilities right so we've got a spy we've got a spy here the cops are there in no time they surround the building and when they realize their Russian spy is actually that idiot hushek they arrest him and then they notice that his Russian sounding name when you spell it backwards means kiss my ass" in Czech (laughs) (laughs) so Yaroslav Hasek then World War I he does join the army and this is the basis of his character the good soldier Shveik Shveik is a, a a rat cunning layabout, malingerer, and drunkard who pretends to be the most innocent and cooperative person in the world. So he says, I can't wait to die for the glory of his imperial majesty. But he's always, he's always like over-fulfilling orders and keeps getting into trouble and ends up in the malingerer's hospital. Anyway, this is Hashek. This is what he has. In no time at all, he becomes a prisoner of war. He's carted off to a, a Russian uh, prisoner of war camp. Russian's going through its own revolution at the time. He joins the Bolsheviks. He joins the Red Army and he's posted to Irkutsk near the (laughs) Mongolian border where allegedly he became a ruthless Bolshevik apparatchik and went off the booze for two years. Then at the end of the war he just sort of shows up back in Prague this time with a new wife whom he's married bigamously from Siberia and he gets to work writing he, uh, The Good Soldier Sveik. But no one wants to be around him because he's betrayed everyone. He's betrayed the, Czech, the Austro-Hungarian army. He's betrayed the Czechoslovak legion. Um, he's betrayed everyone. And so he starts to drink himself to death as he's writing The Good Soldier Sveik. He got three volumes done, didn't complete a fourth before he died. And when his funeral was held in Prague, hardly anyone came because everyone thought the funeral notice was a prank. So that is Yaroslav Hasek for you, ladies and gentlemen. You, reading The Good Soldier, Shveik is hilarious even today. And this very morning, I took part in an international reading via Zoom of The Good Soldier, Shveik, where people all over the world were reading 10 minutes in blocks, uh, going from go to one. I think it's probably finished just about now. So I can strongly urge, and, and as Caro said, uh, sorry, I'm going, I don't want to go on too long here, but uh, Shveik is now the model for non-cooperation for an occupying power when the Nazis arrive the Czechs did all this sir yes sir stuff to the Nazis and then asked around never quite got stuff done oh yes we've got to get that scene, that scene too straight away and, it, and and the Nazis tweaked to it and Reinhard Heydrich the butcher of Prague said the Reich is not to be mocked we will not tolerate this shvakian behaviour so he was really a model and they would act like ultra-patriotic Nazis when they were taking the piss the whole time. And they said, now that we're part of the Reich, we want colonies of our own. We want to join you in this glorious adventure. And the Germans were going, that's amazing. You're so great. You're on board with this whole Nazi adventure of ours. And then the Russians come in and they do exactly the same to the Stalinists as well. My friend uh, Yaroslav Kvarticek, who who used to broadcast on ABC uh, Classic FM, he used to, I said, did you ever play Schweik? And he said, oh, all the time. He once was getting a lecture, he said, at university from a communist apparatchik who said, our system's uh, better because everything is planned. It's much better than capitalism. It avoids the boom bust. And Schweik said, yeah, but what are we gonna do about those hudniks, the people who are getting all the awards for achievement in socialist labor? They should be arrested. And the guy said, why is that? They're loyal people. They're fulfilling the plan. They're over-fulfilling the plan. He says, yes, they fulfill the plan to 120%, which means there is waste. (laughs) They should be arrested. So that's how you play fake. You take the piss and everyone... uh, The Czechs get the joke because they have a sense of humour. The Germans struggled a bit. When... (laughs) When the Russians invaded in 1968 at the, at the Crushing the Prague Spring, they have confiscated everyone's transistor radios, which people were holding to their ears. So, so Czechs... I love this. Czechs went around with, like, bricks of coal pressed to their ears, like they were listening to the radio. And then the Russians confiscated those too. It's like... How good is that? So, th- this is ingrained in Czech culture and Czech mythology
1: now. It is, and you can really see Schweikism in the writing of people like Kundera yes. and all of that sort of abs- absurdism. It, it, it reminds me of, of Monty Python at times. Mm. I mean, the story of, you know, this man who sort of fakes the dog breeds, uh, you know, it's, and the, it's not that big a stretch from your story about, you know, the sort of trying to create a human Z. You know, this is all kind of tampering with, with nature in, in one way or another. Um, just so with ideology for a moment, Ramona, and jumping forward into your sort of transhumanist chapters um, of, of Letter to Layla. Um, one of the transhumanists that you talk to predicts confidently that capitalism will collapse. Can you just talk about oh, why, why that... <laughs> scenario might occur. It seems to me that he's saying something, the uh, argument goes something along the line of Google is paying for all the experiments around transhumanism and living forever and cryogenics and um, uh, they they will need to pay everybody a universal wage once everybody lives forever
2: and all workers (laughs) have been replaced by robots. Is that (laughs) it? (laughs) That's a really hard question. That's the hardest question I've ever heard ask of any other person in oh, this sorry. whole world.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you could answer it in bits and pieces. So the stages.
2: Were you talking about Zoltan Istvan by yes, any think chance? So. Um I Who was, was uh, a, a very ambitious American uh, political um, hopeful who was trying to be uh, elected as a presidential candidate for the Transhumanist Party. <laughs> and um, he, had, he was a, one of these optimists. Like, I, I discovered that most of the people who were, I was in, interviewing who were, who were interested in the past, the paleoarchaeologists, all the archaeologists, um, even, even, um, even the ancient DNA people, were kind of pessimistic about the future. And I was really hankering to, to find people who were optimists because I actually believe that you need to be an optimist. I mean, these people I'm going to tell you about were hyper-optimists and maybe maybe that's not really what I was looking for. But you, in order to change the world, you need to be optimistic that there's going to be some time to change things, that you're going to be able to talk to people, convince them of something, find stuff out together and, and create... Uh, create organisations that that will talk to each other and and move forward together you, and if you're a pessimist you may as well just all go home and you know give up, drink or something yeah but give up, I don't want to give up because you know I've got these six grandchildren and they really require some grown ups in the room to um, be taking, taking control I think um, but but the hyperoptimists that I discovered when I was um, having a look at some of the people who want to think about living longer, think about um, uh, freezing their bodies or just their heads for the next 100 years, so that when someone 100 years from now will have discovered the solution to what ails them, they will be unfrozen and fixed up, and then they'll just be able to see what's gonna happen in 100 years, which would be fantastic. To, to be able to do that, to sort of be projected into it, but it 's not something that I would do myself, but there are people who are really convinced that this is something that we should be looking at um, so Zoltan Isfan is one of the people who wants to be um, elected on on this this premise that he will encourage this uh, this kind of um, life style, um, and he said that um, Universal basic income, which is not something unusual, I mean, a lot of people are talking about it, uh, is is the way to keep peace on planet Earth so that um, if everybody's assured of of an income, then the people who want to uh, invest in science and technology can can do that. And so where would the money come from, I asked him, and he thought it would be recoup from companies who are making the robots and who will take the jobs of the unskilled workers. There's no way you can allow Google to replace a gazillion jobs with their new robot robot factories, he said, and not ask Google to pick pe- up a large amount of that money, and so it's sort of a big new tax, but, but a lot of these people are, are, are really, you know, um, they're more Nietzschean than that, you know, they, they believe in uh, the sort of individual, and it seems that there, there's a lot of confusion about what kind of political system they actually think will, will emerge. But basically, they're not worried about things that I was worried about, like overpopulation, because they're convinced that um, people are having fewer children now all over the world, and in a 100 years, there won't be... You know, the the overpopulation that they imagined in the 60s, Paul Ehrlich and so, will not have come to pass. So there's that... You know, that won't be an issue. um, That uh, we'd all be, you know, working... in enough people would be working in the entertainment industry, we wouldn't all have... We'll be basically in being entertained to death. Um, <laughs> and we wouldn't have jobs. And, you know, my only problem was that too... I'm well, not my only problem, but I did think to myself, well, in 100 years, who's going to unfreeze me? Because everybody that I know will be dead... And, you know, my children will have inherited what meagre thing I have to leave them because I would have been officially dead when they froze me. Um, And then what's it going to be? Will I live in a a home for unfrozen people?
1: Who will love
2: me? (laughs) Who will care for me? Did you find in that world that
1: you entered, the weird world of going to sort of like... Well, I can only describe it as like trade fairs for cryogenics. I yeah. mean, you met some seriously wacky people out yeah. there in California. I have to ask you this. Apart from the fact that there is one woman that you mention in that section of the book, did you find that this was mostly a gendered industry and that there were mostly Clear. men who were interested in eternal life?
2: Um, well, I could... Look, I, I would... Probably. Um, a lot of the people didn't have children. Right. Um, and that was notable, um, that they had become their own project in right. a way.
1: Because this ties back, Richard, to alchemy. So alchemy was this uh, notion, this quest that, that um, consumed the Renaissance and, and other... Um, parts of civilization of the idea of turning base metal into gold and that the gold was somehow going to be um, able to guarantee you eternal life. Is that it, the idea? It
0: was, the idea was it was the search for the production of the Philosopher's Stone, which mm. was this reactive agent that could transmute base metals into gold. But at the same time, it would also somehow be an elixir of eternal life. And this was the obsession of uh, the great Holy Roman Emperor, Rudolf II, who shifted the capital of the Holy Roman Emperor, em- Empire from, uh, from Vienna, Back to Prague in the late 16th century. So this is roughly the same time Queen Elizabeth's on the th- the throne in, the in in England. The, the first, <laughs> yes, I should say. Yeah, <laughs> she's not that old, is she? No, <laughs> well, you know, getting there. And, and Rudolf II was this extraordinary uh, and very shy, depressive, very strange person. He was terrible at running his empire, but was always looking for occult shortcuts to power. And uh, because he he was so poor at impressing his will on other people, he was very shy um, and and very softly spoken, but fascinated by what he thought was the hidden web of correspondences that connect everything in the world, this secret connection between all things in the world that could be explored through science and through magic, which were all different aspects of the same thing. Uh, To that end, he invited the great astronomers of the day to work in Prague, including uh, uh, Tycho Brahe and Johannes Kepler. It was in Prague that Johannes Kepler decoded the, secret, the true nature of planetary motion uh, under the uh, patronage of Emperor Rudolf II. But he also invited alchemists and magicians to Prague to f- try and find those invisible links. Now, alchemy was a really respectable pursuit. It was pursued, uh, if you look at the, it's, this is a famous story, but if you look at the vast body of work produced by Isaac Newton, Isaac Newton, uh, two-thirds of his life was devoted to the study of alchemy. Two-thirds. With the rest of his life, he comes up with uh, mechanics and the study of the laws of motion, uh, optics and, all these, and calculus and all these other things. But, so, but
2: alchemy was a protochemistry. of it course. It was a
0: protochemistry, but a pseudoscience. But a very poetic one and a very beautiful one. And the true secret of alchemy, really, the true ultimate secret of alchemy, wasn't the... the, the childish practice of trying to get gold for nothing it was the refinement of the human soul and the refinement the creation of of spiritual gold from base matter of the shitty bits and pieces that we have sort of lying around in our personalities this was to be achieved through what they call the alchemical wedding the the wedding of male and female within our natures and this is like having two different things the sun and the moon the male and female uh the gold and silver of the soul united but in a state of tension but still united together and it's that tension that gives it that the kind of the, the sizzle of the soul the sense of it of electricity the sense of being in the world it's, it reminded me of that great line of F. Scott Fitzgerald, which was about the, the test of a first rate of intelligence is someone who's able to hold two opposing ideas in their mind at the same time without cracking up. That's the goal of our. Al- that's the truest goal of alchemy. But that didn't stop all these charlatans and magicians, including jo- Dr. John Dee, Queen Elizabeth the magician, and his charlatan psychic Edward Kelly, from coming to Prague to try and create the philosopher's stone and to and to speak with angels. And I swear to God, they did this in Prague. They thought they were bringing down the lost language of angels back to earth again.
2: But isn't, I mean, we can laugh about this.
0: I was serious. I know.
2: But we can say, isn't this crazy? But, you know, this is an example of what these strange creatures that we are. We are kind of bog-standard mammals who suddenly um, are able to talk to each other to think about the future, to think about the past, to wonder about the soul, to wonder about you know how how we function, uh, how the world functions, um, what what are we going to do with each other, and what are we going to do with the future, and how do I mean the fact that we know that global warming is an issue, is to, it's going going back to this time, it's going back to Prague, it's going back to the science of the of the age, it's going back to us being uh, connected, collected together in cities. I mean, cities is a sort of a high echelon of us being collected. But, you know, we are best when we're in groups. We're, we're best when we tell each other stories. This is why
0: John, uh, uh, Richard Dawkins drives me crazy sometimes, um, because he, he thinks everything should be rational all the time. And, and you know... Um is is it, it Dostoevsky who says that reason is a very fine thing, but wanting is the essence of the world, which is a very wise phrase, I think. Um, he doesn't seem to understand there's a kind of a need for a different way of talking about the world. In fact, uh, the, the kind of spiritual conversation, if you like, where you would use the word soul in a way that would make someone like Dawkins roll his eyes.
2: Well, I, can I just tell you about David Lord Kipanitsi, who um, runs the National Museum in Tbilisi in Georgia, and who is, is one of the archaeologists that who found five Homo erectus skulls in, in Dmanisi, which is about 70 kilometers southwest of Tbilisi. And I was, I was really keen to talk to him and I went to Tbilisi and I found, you know, I went to him and he, he, said to me, I'll, I'll, I'll take you to, I'll take you to Demenisi where we found these two million year old Homo erectus skulls. But, you know, I've got to have a few stops on the way. And so I hopped in the car with my husband, Dave, and we were both there, and he starts to play Massachusetts. He starts to play the Bee Gees for The Australian Visitor. So (laughs) the best of the Bee Gees is on. I'm singing along, I'm thinking... I think, perhaps I could start the interview now. No, 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 there will be time, there will be time. And, you know, we drive and we drive to not Dmanisi, we drive to another archaeological dig, which is only a 5,000-year-old dig, so I'm not interested in that because I want the 2 million-year-old dig. And we stay there for a while and we have photos taken and then we have, you know, I ask him then, maybe we could have the interview now. No, 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 we've now got to go and have a look at a a new museum that's being built. So we have to go there and we have to take some people from the dig, that dig, and they have to come in the car. And then we have to go to the other library and I'm thinking, maybe I could have it now. No, 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 now it's lunchtime. And so we now we have to go to have a big Georgian lunch and the Georgians are very, very hospitable and their food is very delicious and the men were all drinking wine and I was working, so I was drinking water and maybe we could have the interview now and no, we can't have the interview now. And then we go up to the mountains, to, to, um, uh, to, the, to the site and David Lord Kibbenidzi is sleeping, my husband Dave is sleeping because they're all pissed because they've had a big <laughs> lunch after all. And we're driving and we're driving we finally get there at four o'clock and I'm thinking, I'm never going to do this interview. I've come all this way from Melbourne and I'm going to not get an interview with this guy. And, you know, we finally, at the end of the afternoon, sit down in the dusk almost and he's sort of... He's quite sort of mellow, of course. And I start to talk to him about Homo erectus and I talk to him about the difference between Homo erectus and, and Homo sapiens and he suddenly says, well, you know, what... What the difference is is something you cannot find in the skull. Uh, what do you mean? I think the difference is we have a soul. And I was just gobsmacked. And I was thinking, really? And he said, Yes. Do you do you not agree? So I right. well, we had to have a bit bit of a discussion about how I didn't believe in God and and how he did and and how it had 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 affected his work. But I knew then that if we hadn't had the Bee Gees and we hadn't had the several different stops and we hadn't had the lunch and we hadn't had the, the wine, and if I wasn't sort of, you know, frustrated, And if I wasn't patient, I would never have this wonderful conversation about the soul from this particular guy who I never expected it from.
1: (laughs) Mm, It's a
0: lovely story, yeah.
2: It is. It's a lovely place
1: to end, actually, at the soul and the fact that we may or may not have one. While while these two people are coming forward to the microphone, can I just ask you to talk about Alan Ginsberg coming to Prague, because I just oh, yeah. love the fact that Alan Ginsberg went to Prague. Yeah, he showed
0: up there in the uh, mid-1960s, and uh, uh, this is when the place was starting to liberalise, it was heading towards the Prague Spring, uh, the communists didn't, were letting loose their, their grip a bit. Ginsberg came because the, the Czech students at uh, the Charles University first University of Central Europe, this ancient university, wanted him to be their King of May, as they called. And so this huge event was put on for him. Of course, um, he started hanging around in bars, picking up boys, having sex with them, put it all in his diary, Um, had this marvellous time, Uh, was giving lectures and the whole thing. And he was, yeah, he was saying, capitalism is a downer man, but he was saying, yeah, communism doesn't look great either though and that <laughs> got the regime offside uh, and he was kind of beaten up in the streets by a secret policeman. Uh, the men he'd had sex with in his diary were um, uh, arrested. Um, you know, it, it, was, it was all pretty ugly and he was kicked out of the country and he wrote one of his most famous poems on the plane out of Prague called I Am The King of May. <laughs> um, and it, it, yeah, he had a wild old time there. Um, yeah, wonderful story. Thank you,
1: yes. Uh, you've talked about, um, science being mated to ideology and, um, the Weird things that that's come up with, but can we ever truly have a science or a history
0: or an investigation of reality that is free of ideology? I uh, probably not. That's a really good question. I'm also reminded of um, Stalin's. One of Stalin's favourite geneticists was a guy called Lysenko, who tried to prove that human uh, that, that that species didn't arise out of competition but out of cooperation because that sounded more in line with Marxist theory. So you have Marxist uh, uh, forms of natural selection, and they they used to say that Lysenko was going to cut the front legs off cows so they'd be better. Uh, able to stand on the side of a hill uh, uh, so uh, uh, it's
2: very very hard Except to inc- that epigenetics means now that you some of Lysen- yeah. Lysenko's ideas were not con- so not, those the, ones, not those but ones but other no. ones were, were actually
0: so what for actually coherent cows, yes.
2: no 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 I think you know ev- every human endeavour is going to be complicated by the human need to be correct and to uh, wish to uh, prove that they have the right idea and Um, And the way science is meant to happen is that you have people who, you know, you produce your idea, I will see if I can reproduce that. If I can't, I might say your idea is wrong and maybe I can and maybe I'll build on your idea. And of course, I mean, you know, you have to watch out for the human uh, kind of a tendency to, you know, want to claim things for themselves. The,
0: the scientific method is pretty good when it comes to reaching as closely as it can to objectivity. But then, what do you do with that research? There's, all, there's nearly always ethical questions about what is done with the results of research. And ethics necessarily gets you into politics and, and ideology. Uh, and I, I, I think, I think it would be almost impossible to, to disentangle that unless you're in sort of the realm of pure mathematics. I, I don't know, you're the scientist. Well,
2: you know, I still look, all of this is true, but then, do you know what they just did last week? I mean, that on Mars, that Mars lander, they started to make oxygen on Mars from, from you know, just some simple things that they found there. They got there. They worked out all the calculations. I mean, this is extraordinary. I mean, Science can work in extraordinary ways.
0: I am reminded, though, of what Jerry Seinfeld once said, though, about you know. We've got like... to
2: news time, Richard. So- sorry. <laughs> <That's> okay. <right.
1: laughs> yeah. Uh, <I> mean...
0: <laughs> True. That, um, that when uh, that you think the, the 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 Apollo missions on the moon were all about the science, but Jerry Seinfeld pointed out the first thing men did was to get a car up there <laughs> and drive around, going, "Yeah, here I am. Okay. Yeah, I'm driving on the moon. Okay." <laughs>
1: Thank you, Richard and Ramona, for um, uh, sharing your optimism, your infectious optimism. I hope that this session has made you want to go to Prague um, or investigate your DNA or both. Well, get drunk Um, with a
0: bunch of Bulgarians, yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And Richard and Ramona will be signing copies of their books now, so please join me in thanking them again. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Carol. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to and rate our channel wherever you listen to your podcasts.